This is Collected Clan, Episode 3. And I said, okay, I can take one more step. And I would take one more step. And an hour would go by. I seriously couldn't feel my legs after an hour. Welcome to Collected Clan, the podcast about outstanding people I've met along the way. People with interesting stories, triumphs, ideals. People who've made their mark in the world and in my life. I'm your host, Gregory Byerline. I've met a lot of people over the years and many people come and go. Shakespeare wrote, All the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances. But these people are the company that you keep. Everyday people, just like you and me. Well, Marcus, thanks for uh, sitting down for a little bit tonight. For our listeners out there, let's put some context to how you and I know each other. Trying to remember the first time I came into the BNI meeting, I want to say it was like 2006. I believe I started with them. I'm I'm thinking about it now. It had to be in 2006 as well. Okay. I do remember that I was there before you, but it had to be roughly, I I would say it wasn't too long, you know, before you. Yeah. Okay. So it was 06 or 07. So we're, we're going back 11, 12 years of history with, with, with a gap in there, but still, um, Mm -hmm. still a lot of life that we've lived together, even though some of that has been through Facebook because someone decided to move back out West. Um, (laughs) that's true. So, so you and I met in a Nashville chapter of BNI, (laughs) which is business network international. I had a great time with that organization and you and a handful of other people from that chapter when we were there, I'm still in contact with. As the ne- as a networking thing, I thought it was great to meet people for business, but there's more to life than business and I've really appreciated retaining some people for non-business. So since you have moved back out west, um, are you still doing B&I out there? When I got out here, um, one of my, I want to say my first things, because just being in the BNI chapter in Tennessee, I was in it for quite a few years and uh, just trying to get my feet on the ground because I just had gotten, just got out of the military and uh, wanted to get to know some business owners and some people that were trying to make things happen in, in middle Tennessee. And so that's why I joined. And so for those same reasons, I did join when I moved back to California, trying to get reconnected and it helped me get reconnected. I'm not a member anymore. But help me get reconnected with some people that um, I did know and uh, help me get connected with some people that I actually do work with still and some friends that came out of that. So uh, I think that's the biggest part of anything, whether it's any kind of networking organization, especially like a BNI, um, while people do focus on business, I think the long term relationships are really good probably the most valuable part of everything, you know, and that doesn't happen in the group. It happens because of what you choose to do after. Right. Uh, I mean, even, even beyond the, the one-to-one format, you know, you can get together for personal reasons, not just because of business and check the box reasons. So I remember during one of the chapters when you were one of the two speakers for that time, we had like 10, 12 minutes. I forget. It's been a long time. I've had three kids since then, so there's a lot of brain cells that are gone. (laughs) Um, You had told a little bit of story about your military background and how that played into your AdvoCare business. 
And I'd known a little bit about AdvoCare. I'd love to hear how all of that ties in together with you. First of all, and I'm going to talk about how, how that ties in. And um, I, just going back on how you said those one-on-ones, just to give you, get you a little insight into kind of how I am is you have some structure there on, hey, this is what you talk about. This is how you talk about the one-on-ones. I never follow that. Oh, I didn't either. <laughs> I'm, I'm more of the kind of person that's going to be saying, you know, I don't need a piece of paper to show me how to get to know somebody, figure out what makes them tick and trying to, you know, see if uh, there's some future there and that we could help each other or something like that. So I'm so kind of ironic in a way. I'm very unstructured, although I did come from an extremely structured background <laughs> because I like to have, have it more have, – things happen more organically. Yeah. I think that's the kind of person you are too. So. Yeah. I, I remember seeing that agenda and I'm like, that's funny. I'm an artist. Yeah. I'll kind of do what I want to do. Thank you that, very much. <laughs> you know, talking a little bit about just how the military plays a little bit into my transition into AdvoCare as a business, right? I think, you know, if you can go back to the beginning of my military service when I, uh, I went to United States Military Academy uh, at West Point, I was recruited to play some Army football. You know, I was running back for the team and um, I was there from 96 and graduated in 2000. Just that part of my military service, you know, West Point itself, I mean, you're living and breathing what the military is 24-7. Yeah. I actually think that exposure in the military is more so than some people that just enlist immediately in the military out of high school because they get to go home. Whereas, you know, as a cadet at West Point, you don't get to go home. It's with you 24-7. I mean, you're waking up as a plebe, which they call the freshman. They call them plebes. You're waking up anywhere on a lot of days around 4 to 4.30 to deliver papers back then in the 90s to upperclassmen. So that really – that was a shock on the system itself if uh, you compare that to most uh, times that high, you know, people who go to high school wake up. <laughs> you could cut Dead, your 10 on Saturday morning. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So there's, there's none of that anymore. You know, so it's a shock to the system. A lot of discipline. We weren't allowed to talk outside of our rooms until – spring break of our very first year. So you're, you're there for probably nine to 10 months uh, without even able to speak. You're not even able to speak outside of your, your barracks room, not in the hallway. Whoa. You're allowed to speak in the academic buildings. So when you're in class, you can speak. But, you know, there's a, there was an extreme formal structure in place and it was really well enforced because there's only you know one class of freshmen or plebes and three classes of upperclassmen, sophomores. Uh, junior seniors and uh, yucks cows firsties is what they call those and if anybody sees you talking outside of your room then you're going to have to get harassed by you know three times as many upperclassmen as there are you so it's really simple to you know make your life harder and uh, probably the biggest thing that we had that uh, I would say that we struggled with daily was one was sleep um, or the other of. one the other one was time, which sleep also played a part because, you know, you had to determine how much sleep is, am I going to get tonight versus um, how much time do I need to just make sure I pass my classes as I'm playing football and uh, going through the whole program right there, which was very challenging. So for me, I immediately found myself in a position in the military where time was extremely valuable and that never left. And if you could just fast forward into my exit from the military and even doing AdvoCare part-time when I was in the military because of the extra money provided me, what I did realize and I saw at least in the AdvoCare lifestyle was people had time. People had both money and time. And I had not seen that when I grew up. 
if I could go back to where I was born, I was born in South Texas in a place called Cameron County, Harlingen, Texas. And I think it was the poorest county in America, if not one of the poorest counties in America that I grew up in. And uh, we lived there for a couple of years. But I just remember we had dirt floors when I was a kid. My parents were both picking cotton in the cotton fields. Mm. Both parents decided, hey, we got to have a better life than this. Let's let's go somewhere. And, and we would be moving, you know, from time and time again. And one day my mom said enough's enough. She was sewing buttons on a, in a jean factory in South Texas. She just realized I am not meant to do this. And so she said and she, she was looking for some other job. I remember she said she went for a secretary position and the, and the guy asked her, said, Cindy, can you make coffee? And she goes, no, but I can learn. And she didn't get the job because she wasn't qualified to be a secretary Wow. or an assistant at, at a business. And so she said, I'm going to go back to vet school. I'm going to get my degree and I'm going to go to vet school. And at that time, I don't think there was a whole lot of veterinary schools available. One of them happened to be Texas A&M. And so when I was a kid was when my mom's college journey began. So the relationship between my mom and dad, it wasn't good all the time. There's a lot of stress, a lot of debt. We, we weren't by any means even making it. I don't know how it happened that we did make it. But my mom would have night jobs, you know, working from maybe 8 to 12 o'clock at night, trying to make ends meet and then trying to put college on top of that, going through to just pure credit card and, and then financing. And finally was able to actually make it work somehow, raising two kids. And I have one kid now, so I have so much more respect for her <laughs> after that. I, really, I mean, I just... I realize how much work that takes, and I just can't imagine raising two kids because my dad didn't do a whole lot of raising the first few years. He was there for a lot of my sports years and some of my formidable you know, years where he was able to make a good impression, and there's some good things he brought to the table, but he wasn't really around the first few years um, and as far as raising, so a lot of the care was provided really mainly by my mom and, uh, and maybe some people that were helping her within the family, and um, I ended up uh, seeing my mom go to college, seeing her get her degree seeing her get into vet school and then seeing her graduate and uh, and everybody was so impressed with that but i'm just thinking that's what you do in life you just move forward you don't care what the obstacles are when you make a decision you want to accomplish something you go do it and and so that's what my mom did and she you know now today fast forward owns a very successful animal hospital over uh, in huntington beach california i i know the numbers because i'm helping her out a little bit because we're going to expand it now into a second hospital that's excellent and make it into a corporate expansion for her so i mean as far as success she is a success story where there wasn't any success and so that was an example that i was able to take and see but with that came a lot of sacrifice on the time and when I realized, you know, everybody's like, what do you want to become when you grow up, Marcus? And I never wanted to become a doctor because I realized that, wow, if, if a doctor is ab absent more or having, you know, as much difficulty as my mom balancing the time, you know, I, I don't really know if I want to be that person or have that kind of lifestyle. So I said, I want to, I knew I wanted to have time. I wanted to be successful, but somehow I found myself at West Point having no time for myself you know, in the grind, but I realized that, you know, if I could just smash out four years, then, then it was going to be good. That probably played a, a huge role in my decision-making process of who I am, because I realized that it's not always about what you want to study, what makes you passionate. It's not, it's not about, you know, the things that maybe interest you, because those things are, are going to be there in a lot of different fields. You can challenge yourself continually if you want to educate yourself in a lot of different fields. You're not going to master, I mean, anything worthwhile, it's not going to be easy to master. Right. So, so for me, realizing that it's more about the lifestyle and not the job. 
And so that's where Avocare came in. I saw people and, uh, you know, and it's a sales, basically, you can say you build a sales team that markets nutritional supplements. Um, I loved health. I loved wellness. I loved supplements. Well, I didn't love supplements yet. Didn't believe in them until I had Avocare stuff given to me by a friend. And, and all of a sudden, I, I felt better, energetic. I was going through a pre-ranger course in the Army at the time. And all of a sudden, I went from one of the worst performers um, in a pre-ranger course because I was built more like a, like a bowling ball. <laughs> On the West you know, Army football team, I mean, I was, I mean, I'm only 5'8 on a good day, well over 200 pounds as a running back, had gigantic legs and, and just a big, you know, big muscles. But you, you want me to be an endurance athlete like some of these people who try out and become the, the special forces, become Rangers. I mean, that was not me. Yeah. And uh, it was a complete body change for me. And it was difficult. And I was one of the worst in the program for the first month, just in the tryout, the trying out program. They call it uh, in the officer basic course. It was a pre-ranger course that we were taking six months uh, to get a slot. And out of about 40 people, there's only 16 slots available. So you had to be at least in the top. And I was like in the bottom five. And uh, wow. I remember just so many times I wanted to quit. But Avocare came in perfectly in my life to where it just gave me an edged energy. First of all, I was taking care of. I felt great. I didn't realize how much nourishment played in, you know, in, in somebody's life. If you're getting up at four o'clock, four thirty in the morning, you know, running five to ten miles a morning, working out like you were in college when you're playing football around six o'clock at night, and then trying to recover and study for your officer basic courses. Uh, I didn't realize how much nutrition came into effect until I started using it, and uh, I was a different person coming out. The personality, I, I joked around with people because they said, wow, your personality's back, Marcus. You know, and It's like, yeah, you know, I just feel good, have more energy, and I think that's where a lot of people, if you have energy, you can do a lot of things that you couldn't do otherwise. So I believed in AdvoCare, and then I saw people with the lifestyle that I always thought you know, was, was ideal, and that was a lifestyle of freedom lifestyle of not having to report and then I know I came from a very strict background in the military but the idea that you can enforce self-discipline on yourself and if you have enough of that you can create you know a marketing empire to where you can have freedom for yourself that was really attractive to me that's cool and it wasn't just financial freedom I mean I did see people at the time that I directly knew and worked with, you know, that were making, you know, when I started there around twenty five, thirty thousand dollars a month, there were three to four hundred thousand in that year. And they got up to, you know, incomes that were touching, you know, a million dollars. Yeah. And that blew my mind, you know, coming from a second lieutenant salary. So uh, Yeah, which is probably know, nowhere near that. And maybe yeah. even less these days. Yeah, I think my first uh, my first second lieutenant paycheck for a month was one thousand nine hundred and seventy two dollars because I remember it. Wow. And uh, my first Month in AvoCare, I actually made a little more than I had as a second lieutenant. So I over doubled my income just in my very first month. And so that was really attractive for me, even though I couldn't really commit a lot of time to it. I could I could do it a little bit and I believed in the products and I just shared them. So that was really my my story until I moved to Tennessee, you know, because in the middle of that life, um, I did make it through pre-ranger school just to give you an idea about how competitive it was. Um, and this is not to toot my horn, but just to tell you. In, in a um, peacetime environment, I don't know the, the rate today, but they were they were very hard on us. And um, I remember we started our class around 280, 295 people, I think. Um, by the first, within the first three weeks, we were down to, I believe, it might have been 30 to 40 people. That's a big drop. It, it was something like that. And I'd say it might have been as high as 80, but I know the initial class that graduated from our original 
you know, almost 300 was around upper twenties. Wow. That, that, that attrition rate was, um, you know, that's what we had to like fight through back then. And, uh, and I joke around with friends who are Rangers and I say I was a winter Ranger because if you ask somebody how hard is Ranger school as far as army schools and they say, well, you know, Ranger school. Yeah. You know, it's pretty hard. It's like a seven, eight, you know, some people will say at least back then. And then, uh, and I said, well, how hard is winter phase? They're like 12, 13 <laughs> 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 <On> scale. Because <laughs> you got to do the exact same things in basically horrific conditions. So yeah, I remember one night just in ranger school, we lost um, a one third of my platoon to hypothermia. Wow. So they were, they were kicked out. They, you know, they didn't, they didn't get permanently sick, but it got hypothermia. They had to take them back in ambulances and, and they were kicked out. So, I mean, just the, that was in one night of a, of a freezing rainstorm to give you an idea. But, um, so, you know, overcoming that obstacle also while just incorporating care. So, so work ethic was never my limitation. Clearly. I never looked at something <laughs> and said, well, how hard is that going to be? I think a lot of people approach challenges in their lives in that way. What's my rate of success? That's what a lot of people say. Right. And I just want to hit my head against a wall when I hear that. Well, what's the return if you succeed? Then balance that maybe with, you know, how much effort will it take? Yeah. What's your input level to get to yeah. gain the output? That's exactly right. And so my whole life was not about, you know, how much output I could give. I knew I had a lot to give, but it was definitely about finding a way and, uh, and a vision for my life to where I could create a, an income where I would not be locked down to reporting to a boss and it would provide freedom for me. Sure. And, uh, I always really wanted to be, you know, the parent that I would, would hope that I would have had. You know, the parenting. My mom was excellent. My dad, like I said, was excellent in some points of our lives, but he was in and out a lot. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and, you know, that's the reality of, of what happened. So I think that was the attractive point in AdvoCare for me. I saw people with the balance. They had money, time, freedom, influence, leading volunteer armies. You know, you have in the army, you have positional leadership. And you also have voluntary leadership because people don't have to follow you over a berm. But you do have positional leadership. And uh, I think positional leadership is, is very useful in a lot of ways as long as you know how to use it for administrative activities but you know uh, rank doesn't really matter when you ask a soldier to go in into a berm with you <laughs> right it doesn't matter Sur- survival yeah. is king i would imagine yeah and um and, and i realized that i'm gonna get on a little side note here but uh one of my, my very one of my very first not missions but challenges in iraq um i was i was as a person i'm i, I I require a lot of myself, so I require a lot of other people around me, and it's just how I am. I mean, I don't actually require it, but people kind of either you hang out it. with me and raise their performance level, right. or they're just going to be offended and kind of just walk off. Yep. Because they're going to see me keep moving forward, and they just can't stand it if they're not. You right. know, so that's kind of. And so, as an officer, I just assumed people would follow me, and they just knew what was in my heart. And I remember my first time, uh, we were supposed to have enemy over this like sand berm. And we were supposed to go attack them and, uh, and arrest some people. And I was about to go over it. I was like, let's go. And this is actually with an artillery unit. So I wasn't with a, with a special forces unit. I was with a normal artillery unit, even though I was a ranger. We went over this berm and I was like, whew, you know, thank goodness. And, and, and there's nobody on the other side. And I look back and I'm the only one. And this thing's probably like 15 feet high. So once you're on the other side, there's no walking back up fast at all. And I remember I was all alone on the other side. And thank goodness they weren't there. 
Yeah. So the intern was bad. And, and I went back and I just talked to people and I was like, what the world? What, what, you know, why didn't you guys go? And I didn't realize it. You know, people were scared. Wow. And uh, I just thought that you would do it. That's what you're trained to do. And going back, I, one of my one of my platoon sergeants came up and he said, uh, "Sir, you know what? I'm gonna have, you know I'm gonna tell you I'm sorry, but um, you know I've been talking with the soldiers. Like we have so much respect for you that you went over that berm. Like I'll follow you, you know, wherever because I know you're gonna go first. And uh, <laughs> and you know I think that that comes as a part of the leadership is you know you, you got to be willing to go first if you're gonna have people follow." Yeah. You know, that's leadership, you know, otherwise it's called manipulation, trying to talk people into doing what you haven't done already. Right. So when so, you were at West Point playing football, did, I mean, were you part of that epic, like, Army-Navy football rivalry, that whole shebang? Yeah, you know, I was, I was. You know, we, we did all right. We did really good one year, and we had an average record the other year. So we were definitely, you know, I was definitely part of that. And it is surreal. Um, there's a lot of challenges that come with with you know doing that and getting there, but um, it was it was surreal and it was cool having my mom brother come out you know and watch me and stuff like that. That's so really that cool. Was, that was special. That's really you cool. Know, that, was, that was really neat. So yeah, is, so. is West? I'm going to ask you a very civilian question here. Is West Point the Ranger Academy? No. Okay. So West Point's a you know a, basically like a college. Okay. Right, military service and. When you go to school at West Point, um, you get commissioned as an officer right when you graduate. So upon graduation, you get commissioned as a second lieutenant. And as you get a second lieutenant, now the whole entire Army is where you're a part of. Okay. So you're officially part of the Army upon graduation. Even though you're active service as a West Point cadet, you're still not officially a part of the Army itself. You know, you're, you're a cadet, that's your rank, but you're not a second lieutenant and assigned to a unit. Gotcha. So upon graduating from West Point, now you have the option of choosing what branch you want to get into. You know, aviation, infantry, field artillery, armor, you have air defense artillery, and um, those are just to name a few of the things you can choose. Plus, you have other non-combat branches you can choose, like service support, JAG, ordinance, so com uh, communication. Maybe, you know, you could be a translator because you, you have a second, you know, maybe a second language. Those are things that you can get into upon graduating, but you have to branch yourself. And I branched personally myself in artillery. Okay. So once I entered artillery, we I, I was stationed at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. We had the chance to decide if we're going to go out, go ahead and try out for a ranger qualification. That was when we had some football guys went out with me. Uh, we had about forty guys plus, maybe a little more, try out with us. And it was a six month course, so we had to do our normal officer basic course, learning how to be an artillery officer while we did the pre ranger course as well. So the pre ranger course would happen mostly in the mornings. Waking up, you know, about two and a half hours earlier than most people uh, that were going through the course itself and just getting all the physical activity that they would train us in and runs and stuff like that. So once we became the part of the very end of that ranger course, 40 people tried out for just a pre-ranger course and 16 people got slots to actually go into ranger school mm. after that six months was accomplished. So before you so, – so the officer basic course was around six months, and once you completed that – now, if you completed the officer basic course and also got a slot to go try out now and go to ranger school itself, um, you would do that before you reported to your combat unit. So I was one of the 16 that qualified. 
I actually did not think I would be there. I was not the most gifted, but I kept on getting better and better and better and better. I remember around month three or four in the program, I was more like an average person, no longer in the back of the pack. And then around month six, I was one of the top three runners in the free ranger course itself. So it wasn't about where we started, just yeah. about where you finish. <laughs> and a lot of people, yeah, no kidding. You know, that was the absolute worst. I was a bowling ball, like I said, and I could run half a mile before I started chafing and, uh, you know, getting out of breath. I was a sprinter yeah. with a lot of what, you know, muscle on me. I was not an endurance athlete. But once that happened, out of the 16 guys that went into the, the actual ranger course, uh, just so happened that for whatever reason, I was the only one to actually make it out of there. Every, every, uh, all the other 15 um, pre-ranger students that went to the ranger school failed ranger school. So I was the only one to make it out of the 40 that tried out initially. And, you know, I, I attest that to just taking it a day at a time. I attest that to, to my faith. My faith plays a big part of just me never wanting to quit on that respect, you know, and, and just taking one day at a time. And, you know, I'm, by the grace of God, I was able to make it. It was a, it was a, it was a struggle for me to make it through. But I was really happy I did. One of the best moments in my life, realizing that I was going to make it through. But uh, I'll give you an idea of the physical toll on my body. I started at around 205 pounds, pure muscle, endurance-wise. But I was big, but I could still run, I think at the time, two miles in uh, less than 11 minutes. Whoa, dude. And, uh, and I could do that pretty confidently. With all of that muscle mass? Yeah. That's impressive. And I think I cruised on one of my tests. I remember I got 1130. And I was like, man, I could have took a minute off that, you know, but I remember that I was really in shape by the end at, at 205 pounds and um, going into ranger school, though, they don't just challenge you physically. They challenge you mentally and they say it's no big deal if somebody can be deprived of I oxygen, say, <laughs> and, you know, so, so really it's not it's not about like how physically hard is ranger school. Everybody can go and try their hardest and in, in between the lines in between the dots at the, the beginning and end. But if we take your food away, what will happen to you? <laughs> then you no, get to see no a fuel, lot of people yeah. start going crazy. No fuel. Yeah. Right. And they take your fuel away. And then they say, we take your, your we, we take your sleep away. Now, really, what happened? And they say, you know, when Water's you take next. Your, when you make them people do, you know, combat missions, you know, and, and, and you take their food and you take their sleep, then see how they can function as people. And you get to see a lot of drama. You get to see um, a lot of what happens in the inside of people's minds. Yeah. And, and I remember people were walking on road marches and would just drop in the middle because they would fall asleep and their body would shut down yep. for 10 minutes. And they would be literally asleep. You could kick them. You could slap them. You could punch them. They would never wake up. We yep. didn't do that, but I'm just telling you, they were, they were in a coma for about yep. 10 minutes because their body said, there is no more we can go. I've seen and, the mortal uh, version of that at trail races. I'm an endurance runner. Um, I'm going to do my first ultra marathon this year, but hearing stories of friends of mine who do like 50 milers and hundred milers and, and now like the 200 milers, the, the new big thing for a certain group of crazies, but the, you know, they'll talk about needing to grab sleep on a 36 hour trail race, but they're not as muscular, nor are they carrying a rucksack and or ammunition and a weapon. <laughs> I mean, that's, it's, that's, it's that's, just, that's it's crazy. Insight. Yeah, I'll tell you the packing level because we know the weights, right? So in the summer packing weight, your, your rucksack is 35, 40 pounds depending. And they still have to carry probably anywhere between 20 pounds of ammunition to 30 pounds plus a seven-pound weapon. Or you can sometimes get stuck with the pig back in that day. And that's going to add another 20-plus pounds. And that was the machine gun. So, so, so you're lucky when you don't have the radio and you don't have a machine gun. 
Yeah. But um, that's in the summer packing. I was a winter ranger. And in the winter phase, you have a standard packing list that weighs about 60 pounds. And you add on that, you know, the Kevlar that you have, and that's both phases, of course, and the weapon, you're looking at 10 extra pounds. Um, you add the radio, which I was a field artillery officer, so I carried that just about every time I can remember. Wow. If I wasn't having the machine gun, I had the radio. So you add 40 pounds on that, and the, the packing weight that you see us packing, climbing the hills, mountains, and stuff in Tennessee Valley Divide um, during the mountain phase was around 140, 145 pounds. <laughs> that's unbelievable. That's more yeah. than my three kids combined. This our platoon got together, and we were going to make our initial ascent into like the like this really hilly area, mountain terrain. And um, our whole platoon, we said, "Hey, look, guys, we got great news. It's so steep that you cannot. Mo- you know, we're not going to be able to make it with our rucksacks." And so everybody got to take the rucksack off and put it in the truck, and had the truck meet us up there. After the uh, the ascent was done, you know, and the road march was done, basically, and it was actually more of a tactical march, but uh, it was so challenging, it was hard to be purely tactical. Um, a lot of the areas required you digging into the ground, but also required some rope assist. So you had to pull yourself up on a rope. Yeah. I remember it started at the very beginning of the morning, it, probably in the first daylight, and it ended probably an hour and a half to two hours after daylight. Um, just the ascent? ascent? Just the ascent. So it was a good it was a good eight to ten hour hike up without stopping except for, you know, uh, if you got attacked uh, from, from another um, the op four opposition force. So it was just a pure ascent other than that. And you know? where and, where is this? What part of the country? That was in Dahlonega, Georgia. In, in Dahlonega, yeah. So so it was really so so everybody got to download and they said, wait a minute, there still has to be one person that carries the radio though. And I was just like, Dear God, do not let it be me. <laughs> Dear God, do not let it be me. And they're like, Okay, Ranger Garza, you got the radio. And they said, Besides having the radio, now you're gonna also have to carry the, the platoon leader's navigation equipment because they don't have a rucksack to do that with. So my load went from around 140 pounds to around 155. And, and, and everybody else that I was competing with to make on this hike was just themselves with a weapon. And I still had my weapon too. Wow. So I, how did I get picked to be you know, unlucky? I don't know. But I did remember um, on that hike, we lost, I think, one or two guys because they couldn't make it up. And I somehow made it up with 145, you know, 150 plus pound of extra weight on me. And I just remember uh, 200 yards into that climb, I'm like, I can't make it. <laughs> I, I seriously can't make it. And I knew that if anyone helped me, these guys are right in my ear saying, you're going to fail out of here if anyone wow. helps. You. And I said, okay, I can take one more step. And I would take one more step. And an hour would go by. I seriously couldn't feel my legs after an hour. And I'm like, I, there's no way I can make it. And then I took another step and another step. And at the very end, I actually made it. And I don't know how, but we actually had some guys fail because they couldn't make it up with just their body weight. And wow. Them. But um, I couldn't believe that. I couldn't believe I could do that. I really thought there's no way because I, my gift is not rough marching. I think it was just by sheer determination. But I will tell you this, that my body was never the same. I couldn't control my body except being able to talk for a couple hours. It just like was almost pure heat exhaustion in about yeah. 5, 35 degree weather and so dehydrated. I don't know how much I lost in that hike alone, but I, I remember that I was never physically the same. It was always hard for me to even pick up a rucksack anymore. I could imagine. But I mean, 
And, well, actually, uh, no, I, I, no, I can't imagine. Wow, that's so, insane. That was my most challenging moment in ranger school. And then I remember at the very end, I, I hiked and I just thought, wow, I did it. I'm so happy. I got a demerit, what they call a minor minus, uh, because I missed one of my check-ins as an RTO. Mm. And I didn't call in when we hit a phase line. And uh, they said, well, it doesn't matter if you couldn't find reception. You should have been able to get to a higher point to get it. But it's just about, you know, the, really the failures, if you fail out, you're not failing. And you just had to keep that mindset. But everything else is working against you mentally. Yeah, well, wow. and the the intensity of that makes sense if one is training for combat when literally lives are on the line. And that was that's the philosophy. Yeah. And I would tell you that as I carry that over through whether it's going over the berm in Iraq, um, there's some challenges associated with that. Um, really keeping a positive attitude was was my strong suit. When everybody else was getting negative and just couldn't handle it anymore, you know, people getting dehydrated because we did run out of water in Iraq because we outran our supply lines at the initial push. I really look back at the Ranger training and it really did prepare me for war. Yeah, I can see that. And because it wasn't about, you know, well, let me be comfortable and, and sleep four hours tonight. You know, even though we're in a completely unsecured area, we don't even know where we're at. And we're in a small convoy because we're stuck with something, you know, with vehicles. I'm like, well, if you want to die, you can do that. Yeah. Or, you you know, you can do a guard shift properly if you want to survive and uh, do 24, you know, 360 security, you know, for, for however long we're here. And I'm like, that's what we're going to do because you're not going to die on my watch. Well, and I was able to at least return with everybody that I went with. Well, how long were you over in Iraq? Um, initially, we were supposed to be over there for three months because our, our mission was to take over where the 3rd Infantry Division stopped at Baghdad, took over that airport where we were supposed to take uh, help be the spearhead for the 4th Infantry Division. We were initially supposed to be there a few months as an artillery unit. So if I could describe the spearhead to you, um, it was 110 Cavalry, and then on the 4th Infantry Division, it was uh, 117 of Field Artillery, which was us supporting the cavalry which was mechanized, had tanks and stuff like that. And what it ended up being was a tank and then my Humvee in the very front and some parts of that that I remember. So we were like at the tip of the tip because we were staggered to provide, you know, certain people artillery. So yeah. And, and what year is this? This is in, uh, we, we went over there in March of 2003. Okay. And the, the operation name was? Operation Iraqi Freedom. Iraqi Freedom. Okay. Yes. Just a small so, little thing we were involved uh, in. And you're on the tip of the tip. We were after Baghdad, after the push to Baghdad. So through, uh, you know, uh, Tikrit, which was Saddam's hometown, Baji, Taji, we ended up taking over the eastern Iraq, which is Kirkuk. We uh, stationed, we, we made a base camp called KMTB, Kirkuk Military Training Barracks, where we raised the first Iraqi army over there. And that was our, our final mission. But that didn't happen until after six months. But we were initially supposed to be over there three months. We made the probably three and a half months of just pure convoying and taking over little towns. And, and luckily, people didn't want to mess the artillery, so they weren't really giving us the resistance we had planned on. Um, and we were very organized at the tip, so that was actually a fortunate part of, of where we were. But the unfortunate part was running out of supplies, food, and water, and 125 degree plus heat. Yeah. So that was challenging. But after that three and a half months was over, a lot of our artillery guys went home, other units, and uh, we just found out we were going to stay an extra six months over past Christmas, and that really put everybody in a funk mentally. And then we found we were going to stay out another three months and another three months. So we ended up staying over a year on that deployment. Mm. 
slowly advancing, quickly advancing, or well, staying we, put? We stopped advancing after about four and a half, five months. So five months we stopped advancing. We, we developed base camps, forward operating bases called FOBs. So I think there was five FOBs, one operating base camp called KMTB. We basically stood in place. And our goal was to, you know, grow the, the the Iraqi army, the very first battalion of it. So the training camp would happen. The new recruits were happening on the base camp, um, and uh, we would just do various missions. The last six to eight eight months of that, after I was a platoon leader in the first, I think it was probably first four and a half five months, I was taken up to the headquarters over at the main training, the KMTB or the main base camp. I ended up being a logistics officer providing for all the logistics in the East with another captain. His name's uh, Jason Posey. He was a football, another football guy that I played football with, a great guy. Um, we became the two captains that would basically um, deal with the contracts that built up KMTB. So needless to say, because all the Iraqis wanted to deal with us since we had all the contracts and the authority to build up the area, we didn't get much sleep because people were trying to wake us up at all times of the night to tell us what they could do. <laughs> You'd have to go to the guard gate and stuff like that. So that was that was interesting. It was actually kind of fun compared to being in the middle of nowhere, what it ended up being you know, when we stopped our, our advancement. So um, we ended up dealing with uh, I could I could tell you those guys by name, but about three to four, uh, three to five different contractors, big contractors that help us build up the actual base camps in the uh, eastern Iraq. And to give you an idea, it's bigger than the state of Massachusetts. So wow. that's where we we travel to different base camps, do contracts with different locals, give people money to be able to you know make it happen. We want to hand the money over, but you do the contracts and then take them with us to get the money. So, and, and are, co are contractors local? Yes, military all, or local civilians, or are they American civilians? Good question. Yeah, um, no, there was no. Uh, we couldn't get supplies quick enough back then, so they were all um, Iraqi nationals. Okay, I was able to develop some friendships even with some guys that I stayed in contact with for a few years afterward, but have lost contact since. Yeah. Of some people we used to deal with. It was a, it wasn't a fun time. It was an interesting time. The biggest threat to us at that point became IEDs. I remember at one point, my uh, myself and, and and Captain Posey would do rocks paper scissors as he would he would lead the convoy to go get supplies because it was about a five hour trip where we would have to go through Iraqi towns. Mm. And at one point, it was like twenty five percent of the convoys were getting hit with IEDs. And uh, and a lot, a lot of people didn't want to go at the time. They were scared. And, and we're, I was just like, I'm not scared. But I started thinking about it. And I do a convoy like every other day. And 25% of these guys were getting it right behind me, right in front of me. I was like, it's bound to happen eventually. You know, at one point, it almost happened. But we got a device that blocked um, any cell phone signals. And uh, we had the, the IED blow up about 250 yards behind us once we were past it, which was awesome to see. Thank wow. goodness. Because I trying to make that thing go off right where we were. So yeah. we were very fortunate in that respect, you know, that we, we didn't take any IEDs, but we did have people in other convoys get hit that we weren't on. I remember that uh, we had the 1st Infantry Division replace us at the very end of 13 months, and uh, they went through the Iraqi town right in the middle of the day, which is like a no-no. Mm. Told them that too, I believe, you know, through the command and stuff like that. But they went through that convoy on the way in before they even got to the base camp to replace us. Um, they got hit and they had a few guys die and they were all just like flustered coming into our base camp initially, you know. And, uh, and, and it doesn't always come down to the last, you know, the, the time frame where you, where you went. But, you know, I, I just remember I was like, welcome to Iraq for them. Wow. And we were fortunate not to not to get into any, but we usually took off 
5 a.m. before the sun would rise and we would get through the dangerous towns at like the ideal time. So we plan around that. So it all comes down to as your tail sometimes. But, uh, you just try to do what you can do. Really, you can't control everything. So you control what you can control. Yeah. And uh, So you're on these, uh, I think I counted two or three or four three-month extensions on being tip of the tip. Yeah. Where did yeah. you go from there? So if I could describe it as we went through Baghdad, we went completely north, almost to uh, the, uh, the the Kurdish areas, Kurdistan, which they call it. I don't remember exactly how many miles, but it's basically from South Iraq to North Iraq. Okay. And we took off from North Iraq down southeast to where KMTB is, right near Iran. Okay. So on that side, we could see Iran um, operate uh, observation posts from where we were, and we would watch their observation posts. So that's about. I think the distance was like around 700, probably 60 kilometers that we went total. Okay. I think it was the longest uh, convoy on record, period. Wow. Mechanized convoy, uh, longest one, and you know, and in that like short time frame was like a continuous of stop and go, stop and go, for 760 kilometers or so. Once you finished that part, like, were you done, done? So, so we finished that part, if I can recall, probably in about six months. And then we had an additional six and a half months after that. Hmm. Of doing the same thing or different orders? No, no, because the first four, the first probably, I would say around five to six months was, was really just doing the convoy, pushing, you know, developing permanent areas where we're going to establish in the, ourselves in the east, eastern Iraq in, in Kirkush. And the last six months was building up the new Iraqi army, the very first battalion. So we set up governments uh, in local towns, and uh, that's what operations did. And um, they also – we were assigned to just build up with supplies, logistics, and training of a, the Iraqi army battalion to help defend themselves. Mm. Okay. The idea was to empower them so we didn't have to always do the work, and they could hopefully take over eventually. Wow. How long were you over there in, in its entirety? Uh, I had another deployment, but it wasn't the same. But it, like I, I'd spent probably maybe two months longer, total like 14, 15 months. Okay. And did you come back to the States and then redeploy back over? No, uh, I didn't. I actually, um, by that time, I had less than a year left for my commitment. And uh, I had a choice to make. You know, Do I stay in or get out? It was pretty high up tempo. Uh, since I had joined, even an officer base, of course, going to ranger school, and uh, and I and I never saw myself staying in the army, but I was always wanting to do my absolute best while I was in there. And so I think I had peace with what I had done. I think I was able to do things that no one else would do. You know, just remember, we could tell if uh, we were the very first people in an Iraqi town if we threw like uh, these charms and these MREs. We had these little candies we'd throw out to kids, and if they ran, we realized you know we were the first Americans there. But if the kids ran to it, we realized, you know, there had been some Americans there. And that was like our litmus test as we went through. But just being able to do that, um, being able to set up quick reaction forces and raids and stuff like that. I think I had my fair share of more than I ever thought I had, you know, was going to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I just wanted to see what the civilian world was like because, you know, I joined I left for West Point, New York when I was 18 years old and I was. 26, almost 27 at the time, I just said, well, what's the rest of the world like now? Right. Which which is certainly a reasonable question for one with those accomplishments to ask. <laughs> um, do I remember, um, and, and there's a chance that my creative side might have embellished this memory, but do I remember at a BNI, you talked about 
a specific raid or a key raid that you were involved in? I would be surprised like, if I shared. I, I will share with you a little key raid that I was involved in, but it was kind um, of a big deal. I don't know wasn't if I would have shared that at that at that kind of. Yeah, maybe. I I don't think I would have shared that though at that kind of. Um, okay, I, went, I, I wonder if it was a. I wonder if you dropped a, pardon the pun, a hint bomb in during a one on one or something. But the one I'm remembering was was kind of a big deal. So okay, I can tell you for me it was a big deal, you know. And and later on there was a bunch of raids, so it wasn't. But up to the time because we were one of the first forces. We were probably three and a half months, maybe give or take, into our uh, our push through Iraq, and uh, we started settling down in an area a little bit. And we realized that people would come to our checkpoints, either shot dead, you know, barely breathing, hurt, maimed. Uh, and so what was happening is there was a lot of lawlessness going around, and uh, you could you, you could imagine the same thing would happen when there's a disaster in the U.S. People take advantage of that, you know, how much more in another country, right? Right. So people are stealing other people's goods, hurting their families, taking revenge. You know, so we're dealing with dead bodies at our checkpoints, uh, not like every day, but there are definitely remember a few trucks just piled up with bodies that came through. You know, I remember a talk with our commander and I was like, I don't I don't really want to start these raids or, or, you know, like being the police force. And our commander said it's our moral obligation to do it. And I was like, crap. <laughs> I was like, because I know who's going to be leading it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? And I better, you know what I mean? I'm the only ranger around. So I'm like, okay, I'm the only one equipped to really be able to put together a QRF and, you know, establish, uh, you know, really train up some guys that didn't have my training or even infantry guys because we're artillery. We were supposed to shoot bombs. We used to joke around, everybody becomes infantry in a war. We would used to say that when it was sure. peacetime, but no one realized it really happened. And when it really happened, People were so pissed because they're like, I'm not trained to do this. I'm not trained to do this. And so I ended up finding 10 guys who were ready to go and just do it, you know, said, hey, it is our moral obligation, you know, and I didn't want to have anybody that was scared. So I just took 10 guys that I knew I could command and control well, uh, that I knew had initiative, you know, courage and stuff like that. And uh, and I and I trained them up. We trained. We did just really quick rehearsals. I had trained them earlier since I was a part of that unit for a while. So some of them had some good training. It was made up of a good group of guys, and they were teachable, coachable, and so we, we uh, ended up becoming that police force. So when people started getting shot or maimed or you know or, or stolen from, we knew it was our time to go. So we waited, and I think there was some people shot at one of our checkpoints came in. You know, we knew it was happening. Now we're active. I said we're good to go. And I remember it's like, okay, where are these guys? Well, they're located, you know, so far down this road over here near this town. And uh, I was like, okay, well, here goes nothing, you know. And uh, so we got in our Humvees that are just basically with vinyl around them. We don't have up armored Humvees that, that are bulletproof. So I say I'll lead the I'll lead the convoy. And I say everybody's lights are off. Just look at our uh, our, our glow in the dark things behind us. And so. We're going to go completely tactical, which is not good for other people that aren't trained. But I was in the driver's seat on the radio, and I had my night vision on, and uh, I was on two different radios. One was on a brigade net with the helicopter, with the helicopters who were um, had eyes on the uh, the perpetrators or, or terrorists or whatever you want to call them, right? Right when we started traveling down the road, lights out. I just remember I had not felt alive more than I did right then. I mean, my senses were probably more aware than I had ever seen them. And I remember I was caught, you know, I had cotton mouth. I was so dry. I could barely speak. My tongue would stick through from my mouth. And uh, 
and I was having to speak on the radios to the people in the helicopters, and, and they were giving us instructions on where they were as we were probably going 55 down, uh, miles down a road with just night vision goggles completely blackout. I was like, okay, you know, my goal was to have our guys not kill each other because one of the biggest things on an untrained unit is shooting each other, mm-hmm. even in a trained unit, you know, because bullets fly fratricide is very common, you right. know, because you just don't want to walk up. You have to at least suppress fire and uh, and be able to um, flank it, an enemy. So we went down and I just remember talking to the helicopter. We got to the area and they were walking us through. They were saying like a thousand yards from the, you know, from them, 800 yards and, you know, 600 yards. And I'd say we'd stop like 500 yards. And uh, the only way that we could actually stay on track because these guys were actually on the road and somewhere in a ditch on the side of the road is I had to put myself in the middle of the road to command and control a team and B team to my left and right. Mm. And I was like, crap, you know, I'm, I'm like right down the, the road, <laughs> we get shot. Mm. Uh, so that was a little surreal moment for me, but you know, I won't even get, I won't get into details, but everything worked out to our favor because we just got on them before they could even respond. Yeah. And they didn't know what happened. And uh, we were able to make, I think, like four or five arrests. I probably could have been more aggressive, but I, I didn't. I didn't pursue anything in, in the ditches or towards the town, but we just found the guys that pilots saw in the air. It was amazing that we didn't get hurt, that we got on them, and uh, we were able to make those arrests. And I remember on the way back, you could hear the pilots on the radio saying, it was like, they're like, it's amazing. It's just like Black Hawk Down. We've never seen anything like it. <laughs> get right on them and take them down. It's like they were just doing this all in the entire brigade net. And the brigade net, to give you an idea, between like a, like a company and a brigade, there's five companies in a battalion and probably three or more battalions in a brigade. Okay. So that gives you the amount of people and exposure that we had. And uh, after I came back, everybody was just like hearing that because it was like live feed of, of, of information that nobody had ever had before on the battle as they were feeding it with the pilots. And it just so happened they were on that brigade net because it was a big deal at that time because it was the only – reaction force in that area and uh, and after that there was a lot of people that wanted to be a part of that quick reaction force so um that was pretty cool well done it went on for another three and a half four months and i had you know it was it was getting pretty wearing by then so uh you know every night basically something was happening so i had to deal with that but yeah you know at least it started right able to get some good guys and positive mindset towards it definitely able to pull off a successful raid really take people down that were just, I would say, stealing and, you know, potentially murdering some uh, civilians coming across, you know, trying to take advantage of the chaos of the time. Right. The story that I'm I'm still trying to dredge my memory to see if I'm remembering it correctly, was there uh, someone's palace that you were one of the first people to enter? Okay. Is, so, my, is my memory embellishing that, or do I recall no, you saying not it? A palace. No, not a palace. So we, we didn't get a palace, but we were definitely... Um, or, a, or a hideout or something like... Okay, so we major were... Major we I can't remember. It was either Tikrit or Taji. Tikrit Saddam's hometown. And we were pushing up, and we took over an airport right near it. Okay. And, uh, and I remember pulling up to it and realizing that we, we occupied an area and nobody had really done a really thorough search of it. So I decided to go and recon what we were actually occupying, which was in the middle of our thing. And we found tons of bunkers and stuff like that. I was able to find like a lot of weapons, uh, Russian weapons mostly, a lot of weapons in the bunker bleeding out, just sitting there. Mm. I remember just going in one of those bunkers thinking to be booby-trapped and just realized, thank goodness they weren't. 
uh, that was a cool thing, realizing that I was the first person, you know, unlocking this thing, opening it up, at least since it was abandoned by whoever had control of that airport before. Yeah. And seeing a lot of just the, the munitions and stuff like that. Can't read Russian, couldn't tell exactly what they were, but definitely had been in the Baghdad Palace, but we weren't the first there. I was not the first in Tikrit because we took over the airport, and that was the uh, mission there. But I had palaces, just not the first person. I had remembered that we had reports from some soldiers that got into the Baghdad Palace, and they were first. And uh, I remember we were so pissed because we were in combat operations, and the guys that said like they were service support at that time had just sat down in the palace, and they were they said all the ponds and lakes were stocked with fish, and they were fishing and catching fish, and there were like these uh, exotic deer running around and so they shot some of those deer and were eating those deer wow uh, you know for fresh meat because we didn't have we well, hadn't yeah, had yeah. any five months i think in our unit four and a half five months the baghdad palace is this like the palace is this saddam's palace. palace yes yeah it's the palace made of marble everything was wow. made of marble by the time i got there 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 was way there was a lot of soldiers over there yeah I, I wasn't the first but uh but i did get to stay there and it was pretty neat but I just remember the stories of people and the first people that were on some of those palaces talking about just like all this wild game that you would expect if you went on a uh, a paid guided hunt, you know, somewhere yeah. with somebody, a bunch of money. That's what it sounded like, you know, like a little haven in the middle of just horribleness, you know, a haven where somebody would be accumulating all the great stuff for themselves, you know, and not available or not even offering that to, you know, anybody at the expense of the people, right? Let's take a quick break for a nonprofit spotlight selected by our guest. You're not going to believe what you're about to see. Victor Marks is here. I've never seen anybody with faster hands than Victor Marks. I'm noticing a pattern. Some of the people that you most don't want to mess with have a lot of respect for you. Respect. And I'm going to pull up the clip just for intimidation factor. One of a kind, wonderful man. He's just absolutely amazing. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Victor Marks. And you've come over some very big obstacles in your life. I had a stepfather who held a gun to my head when I was about seven years old. And he went to hit me. I saw the Lord appear in between me and him. Nobody gets out of this world scot free. Trauma and tragedy, misfortunes, it happens to everybody. My question to you is, what do you do with your life? What do you turn to? Turn to. Man, so you come back home to the States. What is that re-entry decompression like? That's a great question. I remember it was sad for me. And I know a lot about sad stories, but I remember coming back and because we didn't know exactly the date that we would fly out. I didn't know until within 12 hours of me flying out of country of Iraq. So nobody was actually able to plan accordingly and get plane tickets, be there when I got back. So I had a few friends in the town, really good friends in the town, but either they were all deployed by the time I got back or one got out of the army, got there back earlier and left with his family. And so I got back and then we went through our, our ceremony of us getting back. So I, I fly back and we're, you know, doing the welcome party home and everything. And everybody's like, and now you can, you know, see your family. And I just remember everybody went to a family member. And I was like, yeah, I was so excited to be back. I didn't care, you know. But I remember just everybody, you know, had a family member went there. And I looked around. And I was like, 
crap, you know, like my family's coming, but they're not going to be here for like a week because, you know, they had to get plane tickets and stuff. So they don't live anywhere near Oklahoma. So I just remember I got my, uh, my, my pack and I just started walking and I'm like, I'm going to go find a hotel. Wow. And I remember it was like the loneliest walk ever. <laughs> you think? <laughs> yeah. The loneliest walk ever. Because, you know, I didn't want to be a part of like like a lot of people with like their reunions, this and that. And it wasn't it wasn't a long walk. I, I did have a car, so but we couldn't get to our cars until like a day later or two days later. Because, you know, otherwise people couldn't see their families, other people would have to be on assignment, etc. So right. I just remember we couldn't quite get there for some reason to the motor pool and where our cars were stored. And so uh, I just remember walking and um, just walking into town, getting a hotel. And just so like kind of sitting under the shower for hours and hours on end. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I was like, man, I'm feeling sorry for myself. I'm like, that's weird, but I'm so excited to be back. And and once I had people that I was able to see and, and things, you know, family members visited this and that, it, it was fine. And I kind of went on a high, I would say, for like a month and a half, two months of just being back. One of the very first things I remember, though, and it was really hard. I never got over it for probably a couple of years. It's just I remember I went to a Chili's. And uh, people are just eating and drinking and having a merry time and just stuffing their face with buffalo wings and like, you know, sandwiches and chips and salt. And I'm just and I just remember sitting there watching those people. And I, and I was by myself at the time because I had to eat. And I was, I was just like, these people have no clue. I said, they don't even understand life. That's what, you know, and I wasn't angry. But I was like, they just don't get it. They just don't and get it. Yeah. And, and, and my, my mindset changed later that I enjoyed when people enjoyed it because I was like, I'm so happy they're having fun. But the same lines, it's like this whole world moved on. The whole town changed. My friends don't live there anymore. A year has gone by. I felt like I actually knew Iraq more than I knew Oklahoma. Mm. And I remember in Iraq, you know, the, the spring went by, the summer went by, the winter went by, and all of a sudden the spring went by again. <laughs> You know, because we were over there for so long. And I was like, I've been a resident here for over a year. And, and I remember when I went home, it took me a while to really feel like I belong in the U.S. and not in Iraq. Wow. And, and even uh, after, and after all that, jeez. You know, it did bother me a little bit. And maybe I'm not saying from a moral perspective, but I definitely couldn't watch immoral fun on TV. Anything that wasn't really, I would say, productive for a person – I just remember watching some kind of like like Jackass, the show Jackass, <laughs> or like something. something like that. They just don't get it, you know. That's what yeah. I'm just like people have no clue, and it's hard, I think, for, for for soldiers that are deployed. And I know the deployments aren't that long anymore, but you know, there's still issues. But soldiers that just just deploy for a long time, and you come back and you realize that you know what, the world moves on regardless of how bad your life is or regardless if you know a friend is gone they just or, move or, on or multiple friends yeah i think the biggest disturbance for me was that we were over there sacrificing over a year of our lives sacrificing the next two years of social life because we had to restart everything yeah no relationships you know i had a relationship before i left you know the relationship once i got there you know, and just uh, uh, just all the different things. You just have to reintegrate yourself in society. And I think that is a hard part for somebody who has sacrificed a lot and has been over there. Yeah. And uh, while I never classifies myself as, P, you know, any kind of PTSD, like it is hard to reintegrate for a while. 
it was hard for me to relate to a normal civilian, especially if they didn't have any respect for what we did. And especially if they had more of a pity party towards what you like. I remember telling somebody like, yeah, you know, I'm in the army or I served over in a role. I'm so sorry. It's like, what? You're like, I'm oh, a victim. Man. That's the most insulting thing I've ever heard. Wow. I'm like, I was forced to go there. Now we're in a volunteer army. Now you're not, we're not all broken. Right. And when you get out of that, get out of that stuff and you live through that and you know, you're able to grow through that. I'm like, you are different for sure, but you are yourself 4.0. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. yourself. Hopefully you're better. Me. You're better. And I know we hear a lot about PTSD, but I like to tell people that, you know what? Not every soldier is broken. You know, some of the absolute best talent and the best people come out of the army, come out of the services. Yeah. And uh, I know and several. With me, the, like I said, the work ethic never bothered me. What was possible was always what I just wanted to know what's possible to achieve. And that's what I saw in AppleCare, that you can't achieve, like, you know, whatever the people think is impossible. Yeah. Uh, that was an attraction, but I just remember just seeing a lot of other people who just have simple lives, go to a job, nine to five, go home, watch some TV, get up, go to a job, nine to five, yeah. go home. I was like, dude, that's like hell in my opinion. <laughs> that's like a definition of hell. Sure. It's like Groundhog Day, you know? Sure. I mean, oh my God, um, that God, I hate that movie. You know, and and, uh, and and challenges are, are what, what I live for still. You know, I'm an achiever. I think that's a definite, you know, defining personality trait for me. On I did a strength finders test, but uh, yeah, oh, well, know, and, and it's an obvious one too. I should just tell you that from the outset. <laughs> and, I, I would have uh, guessed that if you had been like, "Hey, I'm going to take strength finders, um, achiever." Just go ahead and you know, count but, that as one of your five. Well, I think you know a lot. Not everybody that comes out of West Point or serves, though. I, I think they're. They're achievers too, but I've seen a lot of a lot of people play it safe, and I'm not a safe player. I'm a risk taker. Yep. I want what's possible, like I said, not what's guaranteed. Mm-hmm. And and you can speak since you're my photographer for my wedding. I think I wanted what was possible when I went and uh, you know started courting my wife yep. to be. <laughs> yeah. One of I one of my that. still one of my favorite couples to have photographed. <laughs> I don't know. I, mean, I, think, I think for me, at least that's what it's about. And so for the service time, it made me way stronger. Um, I, I am less tolerant probably because of what I went through when I see people who don't try sure. and are un- unhappy in life, yet they do the same things and don't try. It's probably one of the most biggest things that drive me nuts. It's hard for me to watch somebody who says, yeah, I want this, I want that. And well, I'm not willing to do anything. Yeah, show me you want it with your action. Yeah, and it just drives me nuts uh, in that respect. So I, I do see a lot of people from the service have better work ethics. They're not afraid to work or get in you know, the grind. Mm-hmm. Even in other – it doesn't have to be like a, like a special combat unit or any combat unit. It could be service support. Just people with discipline I've seen you know, coming out of the service, they have a lot of qualities that civilians don't have. That's true. And they're not all broken, guys. You know, they're – they're, 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 they're up and rising champions. You know, one of my classmates I played football with, his name's Hunter Hill. You know, he's running for governor. So, um, over in Georgia. So I think he's going to win. So we'll see. Yeah. Oh, I've got, um, handful of veterans in my world. And from what I can tell, they're not broken. They're yeah. beyond broken. Or if they have been broken, they've healed stronger. Yeah, like a bone does. If you break your arm, where yeah. the fracture was, it's stronger. Uh, they're that. Yeah, 
doesn't mean that they don't have have flashbacks or bad memories or or whatever. But they're they're winners, they're achievers. Um, I just have I have mad respect for military. My dad is military. My dad was actually at Fort Sill for a little while back in. Uh, he was he did a tour in Vietnam. He was a, there for one year. He also lives two and a half miles down the road, so he made it back. Uh, actually, if I would not be here had he not made it back. One could call me a flag-waving person because I have one on my house. I mean, I fly it because I respect it, and I respect the people that gave their lives for it. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I don't want to say I'm a military brat because I didn't. Uh, that's, that's a term of endearment if you've traveled around the world from base to base. That wasn't me. Uh, my dad was a civilian until he re-enlisted in the National Guard and then retired National Guard. But I don't consider myself a military brat, but I, if I don't get it, I want to get it. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I mean, I don't have the direct experience for being in that kind of training. And quite honestly, I would probably not get past the first week of basic training, whether now or even when I was 18 or 20 years old. But it's one of those things where like I have just deep admiration for soldiers and veterans and, and everything that it all stands for. So when you said, well, that, you know, that person said, well, I am a military, and you're like, well, I'm sorry. Like, how did you just not deck that person? <laughs> Cause yeah. Because I, I, I might have if I'd have been your wingman well, right there. I'm like, seriously? They, they were female, first of all. Oh, like, well, uh, okay. They're, they're the pass. <laughs> <laughs> that is yeah, an automatic that pass. very sad to see. They don't really get it, so... I hope that perception is not really all there is because there's, you know, our, our military does breed some of the finest people, like you said, and there's some great people who never served as well. But hand in hand, you know, if I'm looking to recruit in my business or any other things, I have, if people have military service and it's reputable of what they did, they're already going to be up there. And it's not just because I served. Right. But know that they had to overcome things and they have to learn things that aren't given to them. Yes. You know, they have to learn Grab something, figure it out, learn, accomplish it, and then find the next task to overcome versus somebody who's just been given and enabled in their whole entire lives. That's a very dangerous place to be. Yep. So you, you're a father. Um, obviously, you're married because I saw it all. I had the distinct privilege of photographing you and your lovely bride. Engagement stuff, her bridal portrait, wedding day, whole nine. And then you moved to California, so I have not seen you uh, in person in forever. So talk to me about like the family and fatherhood side of Marcus now that you are years back into civilian world and reassimilated and kind of moved on to that next chapter. First of all, I'd say, you know, I have great respect and I'm sure Megan does too for anybody who's married and has to go through that deployment process. I don't know if I would perform the level I did had I not been single with ties back sure. here because yeah. so much more online yeah. than as a parent. So I think that's, you know, one thing I would, would like to say. But for me, being a dad, I always wanted to be a great dad. I think, and this is me mentally not talking about actually being a dad yet, but our kids are our legacy. You know, having a lot of kids is like having a lot of arrows in your quiver. Arrows in your quiver, yeah. Right? And, and, and it alludes to that, talking about how much stronger a person is with kids. And, you know, unfortunately, there is a perception out there that, you know, kids aren't that important in certain circles. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes we can forget just how important they are. And, and I don't think that often probably kids aren't important to parents' lives if they didn't really invest in the kids themselves. Kids can still, you know, grow up and and do good things. And I think, you know, for me, just not really having a a fully present dad all the time 
you know, I, I, I have to really test that to the grace of God and just becoming a Christian and giving my life to Christ at a young age and, uh, and really saying, you know, God, how do you want me to be? Because I had that lacking in my life. So um, that was very powerful. And if you know me, uh, it's a very defining thing. I think that it's who I am because I am not like my mom. I'm not like my brother and I'm not like my dad. I'm just, she goes, what in the world? Like you just, you don't even, you don't even belong in that family. You're just different, you know, not yeah. better. You know, just, but, uh, you know, seeing that now from a parent's perspective and just how special it was to see Graham as my son and he's two years old now. Nice. Oh, it's about to really get fun, dude. It, it has been, it, it's been so awesome to see that. And I remember the first part, it was like, you know, he was born and I was like, I love him, you know, but I know Megan was a little closer to him, you know, breastfeeding him. And I, I felt like she was easily able to bond with him. And I, I can't remember, it was around six weeks. And I would always just, in you know, every morning, I'd always just sit him on the couch and he would sit there and he would look at me and I'd wrap him up and he would always try to talk to me. And his eyebrows were going up and mm. it was, and I'd just talk to him like we we're having a conversation and he'd start just trying to do that back, you know, and I do that every morning. And uh, I just remember just one morning waking up and doing that and just like almost in a scared way, like, you know, I, I love you so much Yeah, that it's scary. Oh, it's very scary. <laughs> You're vulnerable. And I know a lot of people don't love because of that. Man, I mean, it's, it just really hit me and just how much I loved, you know, my son. I think that was a really cool, you know, moment for me to realize that. And it didn't happen at birth. I loved him. Yeah. I can't explain it, but... I, I kind of felt like, oh my gosh, he's a part of me now. And now I can't remember what it was like not having kids. Yep. So a thing that drives me is I look at him and he's going to have to overcome challenges that I never had to as far as society. Mm -hmm. And it's weird. I, I'm going to tell you a couple of things dear to my heart, you know, and I'm not being political here, but you know, I'm, I'm half Hispanic. You know, my name's Garza. My dad's full Mexican. She speaks fluent Spanish, and that's probably his first language. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. All right, my wife's Italian. Graham is is white looking. <laughs> All right, he has blondish hair, and he has ocean blue eyes. They're most crystal clear blue eyes. I will not go throughout a day in public where people don't comment on his eyes. I cannot wow. tell you how many times people comment on their eyes and they look at me or Megan and they say, where does he get that from? Yeah, I was about to say the same thing. Like, where do you I get those blue, blue eyes? eyes? Megan doesn't have blue eyes, but he looks exactly like me. That's what people say. But I do have light eyes and I, and I do have greenish eyes. But Megan has pure brown. She has a little green, but mostly hazel, but brown. Yeah. I don't know where that happened. But, you know, and I look at, like, all the stuff about a white man today. I'm, I'm Mexican, you know. And I'm like, man, if a kid has blonde hair and blue eyes, is he going to have a strike against him growing up today? And mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to get political, but, man, that's a scary thing. So, you know, if you want to know what side I'm on, yeah, I'm a, I am a – Technically, I am a minority, but you know I'm for equal treatment, no matter what your skin color sure, is. You know, yeah, or yeah. your character, which means you don't get advantages or disadvantages for being any one, kind one, of race. one way or another. Yeah, exactly. So I am, you know, I, it's funny where did that come from. Well, my 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 grandpa is is Spanish, and he had light eyes, hmm. so I know that. Like I said, I have light eyes, but uh, my brother, dark hair, dark eyes, so. Um, it's funny just having him, you know, and I say, well, you know, he looks like me and he looks like Megan too. But I said, the blue eyes are from God. So he's God's child too. There you go. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I'm excited and I realized that, you know what, not just telling kids, you can do anything what you, you know, you can do whatever you choose to be, you know, or do whatever you want to do. And it's like parents tell that, but do they live it themselves? Yeah. Or well, it's. I just look at my life and I'm thinking, man, he is going to see everything I do. And if I get comfortable with anything I've accomplished, he's not going to know any of that. Yeah, yeah. sure. He, you know, grab an old drawer one day and say, wow, look at my dad did. But he's going to only know dad from when he was alive. Right. He grows up. So, you know, I, you know, I got to figure out how I can become better. Not, not just as, you know, as a dad, because I'd be present with him and I am. I'm spending so much time with him. Thank the Lord that I got out of corporate America and built a business in AdvoCare that afforded me the opportunity to gain time because I can be that dad for him. And I want to be the biggest voice in his life. There's no way I'm going to let somebody else spend that time with him. Right. Or so, you know what I'm saying? So I'm there to influence him and be that voice. And that was the reasons I did it. And I'm just so grateful for the foresight to be able to say that's what I wanted to do. But, you know, I want to become great. So he believes he can become great because I believe that I could do great things because I saw my mom go from nothing to, you know, a very successful lady and did it with two kids in a bad marriage. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. It's impressive without those circumstances. It's even more impressive inside those circumstances. Yeah. So give and, give her a high five from the guy she probably doesn't oh. remember at the wedding. Oh, day. sure. <laughs> and she, yeah. So, I mean, I, I have a great example. I look at my life and I'm like, okay, I got to become great. And, and yeah, we're becoming great in what we do. We're making a huge difference and impact for people in our AdvoCare business. It's a very, it's a position of influence. And when you have a sales team of hundreds of people or even a dozen people, and, you know, you just try to make your biggest impact with those people. Um, we're doing it, you know. But I also want him to see dad healthy, buff like dad was when he played college football. Yeah. You know, so I don't want to sit there and just be – I want him to believe like, hey, that's my dad. I can become great too. And if he doesn't see me becoming great, not just of what I had done and then do nothing, no. Always get better and Continuing. better. Continue to get better and better. And, uh, and people sometimes don't get it. You know, I always ask, you know, they say, why aren't you happy where you are? Why don't you just want to sit there and just, you know, and I'm like, why? Because I want to be, you know, used with my potential. You know, my potential wasn't just existing so I could just go and serve myself. You know, a great question is, if you had all the money in the world and time to do with it, what would you do? You know, most people probably want to do good. I'm guessing. Yeah. God, I would hope so. I hope they would. But, you know, money will just make someone more of what they already are. Yep. So it's not about money. It's, it is about freedom. It is about influence. It is about being the biggest voice in my family's life, in my kid's life, in my friend's life if I can. It's about having a, a big, you know, a stage to where I can give glory where glory is supposed to be given. Sure. And that's what drives me every day. And I'm not happy and I'm not content. And I even have other stuff going on outside of AdvoCare now. And our AdvoCare business is booming, going better than ever had before. And I'm still super active with that. But I'm like, I'm going to push myself. What else can I do outside of AdvoCare? And so we're trying, I'm trying to help my mom expand her clinic and we're buying commercial real estate right now. Yeah. So there's a challenge ahead, right? <clears throat> yeah. It's a challenge I want to learn about because I also want investments, not just a business that pays me. Right. I kind of look at the Robert Kiyosaki thing of the quadrants, you know? 
Mm-hmm. But he talks about, you know, whether you're an employee, self-employed person, maybe like a doctor or veterinarian like my mom is, a business owner or someone who owns a business, they can walk away and it still grows and pays them. And an investment, you know, it's an eye where you can get into big investments that pay you large, but it's very risky. And I believe in that. And I like, yeah. I've got a business, but I don't have an investment. And if I could learn how to be a better steward of money, sure. which is an easy word to say, but a steward of money is able to direct money to where it can grow uh, and not just sit there and then use those resources to do good. Yes. And that's my goal. Sure. You know, and people are like, have you ever developed real estate before? Uh, no, but I got a book and I read it and I'm <laughs> right. in contract. You right. know what I mean? I got the loan. Yeah. I already approved. I've got, I've, I've got a brain and I can read so I can learn. I think one of the most depressing things is if you just, you know, you go to high school and you quit learning or you go to college and you quit learning. I think yeah. even West Pointers, they get West Point degrees. They stop learning. They don't stop learning maybe, but, you know, they don't take the initiative. They're waiting for other people to tell them what to do. They stop studying. Yeah. I guess a defining characteristic I just had to realize that I'm a risk taker and I am a visionary. Yeah. And futuristic yeah. is my key on strength finders. I'm very futuristic thinking. And um, I like those, you know. I mean, I I, never, I thought they were boring when I heard that. It's like, so what? My wife's like, that's awesome. Why don't you? I'm like, that's boring. I knew that already. <laughs> you could probably see why some people don't like to hang out too much sometimes, or they might feel like they're falling behind. Or, but I, I you know, if someone's just ready to kind of kick their boots up, retire, and wait to die. Then I can't, I can't relate. Right. I agree. Well, this has been awesome, brother. Appreciate you taking the time tonight. I know it's. Uh... Prime time. You've probably missed Graham's bedtime by now, but this is good. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm I'm honored that you asked. So well, I appreciate, I, it. I appreciate you being willing to tell it. Yeah. Anyway, so I'm really I really am. I'm honored, man, and um, I I hope it helps. And I you know I'm looking forward to hearing more about where this goes and the other people you talk about. You know, or talk to and interview and stuff like that. That's so cool. that's well, gonna be well. Thank you very much. I want you to be honored um, also uh, because I have my immense respect for the military and the sacrifices and the skills and all that stuff. So um, I appreciate you saying that and for chatting tonight. Yeah, absolutely. There you have it. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe and share with your friends. Go to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Search for Collected Clan and subscribe. See more in the show notes for this episode at www.collectedclan.com slash Marcus Garza. Marcus is spelled with a K, M-A-R-K-U-S. And a big shout out to my friends Worldwide Groove Corporation for this episode's original music. The song is Mimosa from their album Chilodesiac Lounge Volume 1. Check out more of their music at worldwidegroovecorporation.com. Now go be you.